0: Thank you and good morning. Uh, If we have not met, my name is Jake. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, I am the student ministry pastor, which means I get to hang out with middle schoolers and high schoolers all the time. Uh, And you, high schoolers who manage to get to church 45 minutes before usual, can we just like acknowledge the miracle? Like, seriously, it's incredible. It's amazing how the world exists before 1030, isn't it? Like, the roads have already been programmed and everything. The matrix is all kind of there. Anyway, uh, this morning when you and your family woke up and you had that, you know, Sunday after Christmas conversation of like, should we go to church today? Like, we're tired. And you're like, oh, it'll probably be a nice, relaxing message, right? It'll be a nice kind of um, feel-good message. But uh, no, this is uh, axe laid to the root of the trees, um, unquenchable fire. Um, so, good morning, welcome to church. <laughs> uh, oh, dismiss kids? Have kids not been dismissed? Kids, you can you can go to you can go to children's ministry. Run, don't walk. Unquenchable fire? No? Okay, great. Oh, uh, do you want to go? You okay? I'm happy. I'm happy we. You've been wearing like a high school ministry sweatshirt. This is, a, this is a whole mood. No, thanks, man. I appreciate it. But for the past few weeks of Advent, uh, we have been wrestling with the theme of loss. We have been in a series titled Out of Loss where we have been exploring texts and vignettes in Scripture where there are these profound moments and experiences of loss people losing expectations, people losing family members, legacies, the whole nine yards. And what we've been sitting with and wrestling with is that we have a God who does not simply feel sorry for us in our loss, but we have a God who actually walks with us in loss. We have a God who leads us out of loss into his kingdom, into his way of life, and into flourishing We have a God who truly has a better blueprint for our lives and he guides us out of loss. And so you could say that our kind of guiding question this whole series has been, how does God walk with us through loss? But this morning I want to ask a different question. As we sit here the last Sunday morning of the year, I want to flip the question around and I want to ask this what must we lose to walk with god what must we lose to walk with god what must we let go of what must we forsake what must we lay down to experience flourishing in god's kingdom and that is the question which is boldly addressed by the really peculiar figure of john the baptist famously weird guy. We can just call him weird. He he dresses like a weirdo. He's like fire and brimstone. His words are strong. We don't really know what to do with him, but we meet him in the first chapters of Matthew's gospel. The, The gospel of Matthew opens with the genealogy of Jesus. Then we get one little picture of Jesus as a young child being protected by his father, and then the camera pans away from Jesus for a moment. Moments before Jesus erupts on the scene as a teaching and preaching rabbi, we get this strange little vignette of John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness. Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, John is the cousin of Jesus, uh, so we're going to call him Cousin John. Deal? Deal? Deal, okay, we're Cousin John now, all right. So quite cinematically, he shows up in the wilderness of Judea right at the Jordan River. Uh, This is what it looks like, by the way. Um, This is a picture Heath took last time he was there. It really is desolate, isn't it? And the way Heath describes it and the way it looks in real life is just this desolate kind of wilderness, desert kind of land, and the Jordan River cuts straight through it. And so for a moment... Put yourself in the scene. John the Baptist standing in the wilderness, and he is preaching. Or in other words, he is making a decisive public declaration about truth. Because that's what preaching is, isn't it? That's what good preaching is. is a decisive declaration about what is actually true, what reality is. Preaching pulls back the things we see to show the world as it actually is. So the question we have is this. What is John's declaration? What is his message? What is John preaching? And it's very simple. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, first of all, talk about a to-the-point sermon, right? Like, sermon prep takes a long time, and when I read this, I'm like, is that all I had to do? Like, could I have showed up here the Sunday after Christmas and just said, repent, let's pray. Um, I might have gone a little bit quicker. But within those simple little words, those seemingly tight, concise little words, is a world of meaning. The statement, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, is much larger on the inside than it is on the outside. And it all hinges on what it means to Repent. What does it mean to repent? What what is meant by repentance? To understand John's message, we have to understand repentance. And I'm willing to bet that this simple little word repentance means something different than what you assume. In its very inner workings, the word repentance, I'm going to guess, has a different meaning than what we typically understand. Because when I hear the word repent, I think of street preachers. Right? I think of angry people on street corners yelling at people to repent with poorly made signs, right? But that's not really what that word means. It, does, it doesn't bear that same kind of baggage. The Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia. Everyone say metanoia. Metanoia. If it's bugging your brain why that sounds familiar, uh, the island in Moana is Matanui. Um Just want to release you from that suffering that I had for about two days. But Greek word, metanoia, not animated, real word. Um, John uses this word, and we see it as repentance. Jesus uses the same word. Peter uses the same word. Uh, The gospel writer John uses the same word. Paul uses the same word. And this word metanoia is a fusion of two different words. It's a compound word. And the first word within metanoia is meta, meta which to us sounds familiar, right? It means altered, changed, higher or beyond. If you think of metaphysics, it's still physics, but it's a bigger version of physics. I understand neither, I understand metaphysics less, okay? Think about metamorphosis, right? Something changing into a greater form. Think about a meta-narrative, a big overarching story. And so the first half of metanoia is the Greek word meta means altered, bigger, beyond, changed. Something was once this way, and now it's been made into this. It was once small and different. Now it's bigger, grander, and transcendent. So that's meta. The second word is a little bit more troublesome. It's the Greek word noose. Not the one that's made out of rope. Different word. But the Greek word nous, and the best way we know how to define that, is it's how you make sense of reality. It's a little bit like your perspective of the world, it's a little bit how you observe the world, but it's much, much stronger of a word. When, when, when writers in the Bible use the word nous, what they're getting at is the core way you make sense of everything in the world, how all the pieces fit together. It's your sense of story. It's your sense of how everything fits together. When you think about your beliefs about God, your beliefs about yourself, your beliefs about others, and your beliefs about the world, and you ask yourself, how do all of these things fit together in your mind? What is the connecting core of how you view the world? That's noose. If someone were to look at your life, everything you believe, everything you assume, all the truths that are kind of your operating system, they would have your noose. And so the way I'm going to talk about that is noose is like your story. It's how you make sense of the world. It's not just what you think. It's not just your opinions. It is your operating system. Everything in your life flows from your sense of story, from how you make sense of the world. It's a really, really strong, significant word. And so, what does it mean to repent? What is repentance? It's changing your sense of story. Um, here, here's the way that the Apostle Paul says it in Romans 12. Famously, he says, Don't be conformed to the pattern of the age, but be transformed, meta, by the renewing of your mind. Noose. And so repentance is literally the changing of your mind, not changing of your opinions, not the changing of your ideas, literally changing how your mind views the world. And so when John says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, he's not just saying stop doing bad things. He's not just saying stop doing immoral bad things. He's saying you need to rewire the way you view everything. You need to change your sense of story. What you believe about the world, how you observe reality, that needs to be different. And so, what we need to understand to understand John here is repentance is not primarily remorse over bad actions. Repentance is the good loss of a bad story. Repentance is not primarily remorse over bad actions, it's not just feeling bad for what you've done and now you wanna do differently. Repentance is the good loss of a bad story. What does repentance involve? It involves evaluating what you believe to be true. And so this morning, what do you believe to be true? What do you believe is true about yourself? What do you believe is true about the world? What do you believe is usually true about others? And what do you believe is true about God? Repentance involves us coming to -to face-to-face with those things that we believe, evaluating them, and saying, that which is untrue, I let go of. That which is a lie, I reject. That which is a bad story, not the true story, but that which is a bad story, I lose. Repentance is the good loss of a bad story. And so as John the Baptist cries out in the wilderness, as Cousin John is doing his thing in the wilderness, he's imploring the crowd to lose their bad stories. John the Baptist is saying, you believe some things that are not true. Come here, come to the wilderness, be baptized, confess your sins, and change how you view everything. John is not just trying to make... Immoral people into better people. He's not trying to take bad actions and make them into good actions. He's trying to take bad stories and make them into good stories. He's saying that's what King Jesus does. He confronts the lies that we have believed and he invites us into live into the truth and into reality. And so what story is John trying to tell? If he's saying, you know, come here, get rid of your bad stories. What is the good story that John is trying to get everyone to rewire their brains around? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his whole message, right? Repent, change your minds, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or in other words, King Jesus is coming. He's coming, he's arriving, and he is now already arriving. To say that a new kingdom is arriving is to say that a new king is arriving. And with a new king, we have an entirely new way of doing things. And this locks in so well to this specific Sunday that we find ourselves on. All of the expectation, all of the longing, all of the waiting for Jesus, that time is over. Jesus is here. He's at hand. He's coming And the very next passage that takes place in the Gospel of Matthew is when Jesus comes on the scene. John is saying, repent, change the way you view reality, because a new king is coming, and he's going to be here in like two minutes. It's not a, you have some time, you know, take your time, think about this, you know, think about this whole thing kind of works for you. No, John is saying, hey, you have no time. (laughs) This is urgent. This is now. This is immediate. We must repent of our bad stories. We must repent of the lies we've come to believe because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's my question. Why the wilderness? (laughs) Seriously. If John's message is so urgent, because that's an urgent message. Right? The king is coming. He's right here. Many of us, we believe untruths and lies. We need to rewire our brains right now. If the whole thing is so urgent, why is John in the wilderness? (laughs) Seriously, why is he in the place where literally no one lives? Why does he choose the wilderness as his pulpit? Why is the wilderness his sanctuary? Why isn't he preaching on the temple steps? Why isn't he in the middle of Jerusalem? Why has he chosen a place that is 20 miles outside of Jerusalem? Because the area is rich with story. For those of you who know the Old Testament well, what has happened in the wilderness? What has happened at the Jordan River? The answer is everything. (laughs) right? The Israelites wandered in the wilderness. The wilderness was a crucible used by God to reveal himself to them. It's where God gave Israel the law. It's where God made covenants with Israel. It's where God corrected their untruth and gave them a good story. It's where God designated Israel as his own people, his special possession. The Jordan River, right on the threshold of the promised land, It's where Moses gave Joshua the mantle of leading Israel. It's where Moses confronted Israel and said, I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Which will you choose? Which will be your story? It's the place where Elijah ascends into heaven. It's the place where Elisha picks up his prophetic mantle. And it's also the place where a third leadership transition is happening. And it's the transition of John the Baptist to Jesus. John chooses the wilderness because it's a story. He doesn't just invite people out to hear his clever preaching or his winsome words. He invites people to come out to the wilderness to relive the good and true story they are invited to live. When John says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he means it because they are literally standing in the place where God brought them into the promised land. But this time when people are baptized in the Jordan River, when they are brought through the Jordan, they're not being given the promise of the promised land. They are being given the promise of a new king. There are two groups of people who come to this event. There are two groups of people who come to John in the wilderness. And the first is simply known as the crowd. Verse 5. The crowd goes to John from all over the place, from Judea, from Jerusalem, from everywhere around, and they are baptized by John in the Jordan, confessing their sins. In other words, they believe the story. They see what God has done for Israel. They see the truth God is welcoming them into. They are baptized in the Jordan. They literally leave their so-called promised land, And they come to the Jordan River, and they are baptized into a whole new way of life, a way of following King Jesus. The crowd responds the way that we want to, right? The crowd responds the way that we ought to. They literally leave their old lives behind. They leave their old selves behind, their bad stories, and they are baptized into a new story, the Jesus story. But they aren't the only ones who come to John, are they? The crowd only gets one verse, only one little verse of how they actually react. The vast majority of Matthew 3 is all about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, famously the villains of the story, right? Strikingly, Matthew only groups them together twice in his entire gospel, and this is one of the two times. These groups don't like each other. They don't agree on anything But the one thing they have in common is they are deeply critical of John as they will be deeply critical of Jesus. And it says this, when the Pharisees came to his baptism, John said to them, you brood of vipers. I just picture the whole crowd losing their minds, right? John says this and the whole crowd basically turns into a hype crew behind John and like he goes, you brood of vipers. And they're just like, oh. And like the Pharisees and the Sadducees are just like, okay. But John looks at them. He says, you sack of snakes. You brood of vipers. You children of serpents. And then he lodges a rhetorical question at them. And he says, who told you to flee from the coming judgment? Who told you to flee from the coming wrath? John can guess their intentions. He knows that they are not there to be baptized. They are simply there to be spectators. See the difference in the language? The crowd comes to be baptized. They come and they are baptized by John. The Pharisees and the Sadducees come just to be around the baptism. They're doing recon. They're they're watching John to see how big of a problem he's going to be. They have zero intention of repenting. Zero intention of laying down their bad stories. And John calls them on it. He says, you children of snakes, who warned you to flee? Who told you to come here? And then he says this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Or in other words, live a life worthy of the good news. Live a life worthy of the good story we have been given. They try to respond, but John cuts them off. It says, and says, and don't you presume, don't you tell yourself that because you're children of Abraham, you're on the right team. Don't presume that just because you are children of Abraham, that you have it all sorted out. That's not as valuable as you think it is. Because you think it's a big deal that you're children of Abraham? God, God can raise up children of Abraham from these rocks right here. What is the bad story of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They believe they have it in the bag because they've always been associated with this good thing. They believe that they are living the right story simply because they've always been in this one place doing the religious thing. I call it church kid syndrome. I am a church kid, as Noah mentioned, and so I can talk about this critically. When you are born and raised in the church, when you've been in the church for a long time, when you've attended church on Sundays, week after week after week, there is a danger there. The danger is that we come to believe that we have it in the bag, that you're on the right team because you have solid church attendance, because you do the religious thing really, really well, We start to believe that we're fine. We have no need to change ourselves. We have nothing to lose. We have nothing to lay down. Why? Because we do the whole religious thing, right? We've earned it. We've worked. And all of our sense of being okay comes from the fact that we just go to church week after week after week. And John just opens fire on that narrative with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He takes this story and he says, that's the wrong story. And what he says next is brutal. He says, right now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. (laughs) That's a famous prophetic statement from the Old Testament. Which almost exclusively refers to God judging wicked nations. He says, you think, you as Pharisees, Sadducees, "You, you think you have it in the bag. But I tell you right now, you are the wicked and corrupt nation. Your story is wrong. Repent. Right? John is imploring them to repent, saying you're living a bad story and it will fail you. So this morning, my question for you, my question for all of us is this. What bad stories are you believing? What untrue things have worked their way into your operating system? What untruths have managed to become central in your life? What lies have you come to believe about yourself? What lies have you come to believe about God? What lies have you come to believe about the world? And what lies have you come to believe about others? The Pharisees' bad stories that they're church kids and they think they've earned something. But what is our bad story? What bad stories are in your heart that you must repent of? For Matthew 3, I think there are two applications. There's two calls of Matthew 3. Two things that we are meant to sit with. And the first is simply John's message. Repent. Repent. Faithfully following Jesus into a new year I believe that always involves sitting with our stories, sitting with what we assume to be true, sitting with what we believe to be true, and asking ourselves the question, the things we have based our lives upon, are they actually true? Do I see God rightly? Do I see myself rightly? Do I see others rightly? Do I see the world rightly? Or am I living a bad story? For most of us, to be entirely honest, the answer is both and, right? It's both that, yes, we see the truth, we see Jesus, we are living a good story, we're living into truth, but also there are still bits and pieces of untruth that lodge themselves in our minds. Narratives of shame and self-hatred, narratives of just heavy criticism of others, Narratives of God is deeply disappointed in us. Narratives that, if only I could do this, then God would accept me. If only I could achieve this in my faith, then God would finally view me as a legitimate Christian. What bad truths, what bad stories have worked their way into your mind? I encourage you this week, as you think about the coming of a new year, repent of those things. Change the way you think. Hold up Jesus as the truth and say, Where does my truth differ from this? Where do I need to change? What lies must I lose to walk with God? That's the first call of Matthew 3 to repent. The second call is this be a voice in the wilderness. John is a voice in the wilderness. He stands far off from society, literally calling people out of their so-called promised land and into the new promise of King Jesus. He is a voice crying out in the wilderness, begging others to repent, saying, you are believing things that will let you down. My question for you is this. Are you a voice in the wilderness? If you follow Jesus... Do you have a voice in the wilderness? Are you crying out with your life to others? I think when we read Matthew 3, one of the first things we think is, oh, the the, the point is to not be like the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the point is to be like the crowd, right? To be like the faithful people who responded to John's message. You're not wrong, but the higher call is to be like John the Baptist. The point is not just to be the crowd. The point is to be like John the Baptist, who cries out in the wilderness. He is so consumed with Jesus and his truth and the kingdom that his whole life cries out in the wilderness. So let me ask you this. Are you crying out in the wilderness? Are you telling the better story? Does your life tell a better story? Have you picked up the mantle of John the Baptist to be a prophetic witness crying out in the wilderness? I'll end with this. One of the core practices of our community is faithful witness. One of the core practices is not simply having faith in Jesus, but communicating it to others and welcoming people into the good story. Faithful witness to the good story of Jesus involves drawing people out of their bad stories into the power of a life that has been transformed by Jesus. Our strongest witness, our most effective witness, is not in eloquent words. Not in tremendously strong understanding. It's through a story well lived. Our faithful witness is not a matter of being eloquent or convincing. Our faithful witness is a matter of our own lives being transformed by the truth. We live a good story and we invite others into it. And then our very lives become like voices crying out in the wilderness. We are living in a world starved for stories. We are living in a world where truth has been deconstructed. We are living in a world where it's difficult to know what to believe or where to find hope. Is your life a voice crying out in the wilderness saying, there is hope? Are you showing the good story with your life? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you, Father, that we have a good story. That the bad stories, they are being proven untrue. The the brittle and thin things that we are tempted to place our hope in, they are being proven as simply not enough. But the good news is that King Jesus welcomes us into a better story, a better blueprint, a better way of life. So, Father, my bold prayer this morning is that we would truly believe the right story. We would believe the good story, that our lives would bear fruit worthy of the true story of Jesus, and that our lives would become ministries of faithful witness, like voices in the wilderness crying out to those who are starved for meaning and story. Help us to be hope in a world that deeply needs it. In your name, amen.